Well, okay. First of all, I do feel that we just need to just tie off a little bit on on last week. Okay. It so amazingly in a rant about how I was mispronouncing words and everything I knew was wrong, I mispronounced hagiography, which Dan, you corrected me on, and then I ordered you to get out. So I'm sorry about that because you was you, 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 your correction was in fact correct. So I it was just a bridge too far for me on last Monday. So anyway, I, I just wanted to Dan. I wanted to formally apologize and thank you for correcting my <laughs> my grievous mispronunciation of hagiography. By by popular demand, this can be like a standing weekly uh, apologies for words pronounced wrong in the last week. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, so uh, yeah, <laughs> well, I just love the fact that you were like, "Who cares?" and then immediately corrected me like moments later. But so it's like, well, who cares? Clearly, there's a fine line between the policing mind and the criminal mind in this particular dimension because. You obviously care. So I care too. So we all care. Um, but that was a lot of fun last week. That was super interesting. So um, the, the pronunciations aside, um, the, the reliving deck was really interesting. So, um, so Adam, I, I, this kind of, I've been uh, excited to see uh, how many folks are really interested in this topic, which is. Yeah. 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 I, very fired up to see the response. Uh, I don't know if, about you, but um about Saturday, Sunday mornings, I started thinking about, you know, if we haven't already uh, telegraphed what we're talking about, I start getting a little itchy. And on this one in particular, because often we go dumpster diving into your recent tweets to see what, <laughs> what went well. Uh oh. And no, no, I don't, I mean, I, I, nothing had, had blipped on the radar. <laughs> so I was kind of wondering what we were going to talk about. But then, um, you know, you had this, this great um, kind of, out of the blue comment that, that I think you received. Yeah, I mean, not only out of the blue. I mean, I, I, I uh, DM, um, and I'll definitely anonymize it here. Um, but I, you know, my are your DMs open, actually, Adam? Uh, yes. Any follow-up questions? Like, well, <laughs> yes. No, yes, I'm curious, open. like, how many people yeah. have? I, like, I have open DMs, and it, to me, it's actually really important because I, yes, there is some amount of spam, but there's also like a lot of people who. Um, have interesting thoughts that damn it. Absolutely. And uh, I don't, I mean, the amount of spam I get is very minimal and the amount of like, I uh, am getting a lot of spam. I get a lot of, I get a lot of like cryptocurrency spam. Do you not get any of this? No, well, maybe I don't check my, you know, they, they have the two folders, the, the, like we think it's spam and and we think it's not spam. And I don't check the folders very often. Why must I stare into the sun at the one that we think is spam? The one I get a lot is like the, I get added to some group of like 25 random people. That's all cryptocurrency spam. Oh, Oh, okay. Good to know. Anyway, ignore all that. But so I, um, so someone I didn't know came into my DMs and asked a really interesting question, which is what has prompted this discussion. Uh, and so the uh, the reason I'm writing to you is to ask you for a piece of advice on how to do a transition from where I am in the tech field to a full-time systems programmer. A uh, bit of context, uh, I come from a user space background. I've been doing that for 15 plus years. I tend to gravitate towards hardware-related subjects. And because of that, I've gone through a bunch of different things, solutions, architecture, operations in the last five to 10 years, and I've really enjoyed that. Uh, I've taken various courses on Linux kernel development, and I really have fallen in love with that. Uh, and I've been really trying to invest my free time in understanding this stuff and, and bridging the gap between my software knowledge and hardware knowledge, such as I've been you know, working on a hobbyist OS, and I've been 
blogging about it. I've been trying to contribute to the Linux kernel. My problem is that I am having a hard time breaking in. I'm, I'm not getting interviews at the HR level. And I, you know, try to ask for advice for people. And, uh, you know, sometimes I get some good in insights, but a lot of them try to talk me out of this and tell me that this is like, this is not worth doing. So uh, I don't know how to proceed. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you can, you, me in a sense, can, can help me proceed. And I'm, I was thinking this is a great, I want to hear from everybody on this because this is, I, I've got my own ideas, but I, I think a lot of people are going to have their ideas on how to break into systems programming. And I think for starters, Adam, I feel we should define systems programming. Yes, I, we definitely should. Why don't you go first? Because as I was writing it down, <laughs> gosh, it is, it is kind of, it, it's easy to talk about characteristics and it's hard to give a, or hard for me to give a succinct definition. I feel like I have the same problem actually with software. Just, just, just defining <laughs> software. You've, have you done this? You've tried to like, like I'm going to come up with a concrete definition of software right now. Have you ever done this? This it, no. it does not go well. Basically, it's really hard to come up with a definition of software such that Euclid wasn't writing it. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Just thinking like that. Uh, yeah, that the, the Greeks weren't writing definitions of algorithms, and that uh, product managers through the specs aren't aren't programming. I mean, any definition of software that relies on a definition of hardware is just going to get, I mean, it's just too easy to be like, what if we annihilate all the hardware, all the software no longer exists? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, so did I, I you, you know, because you and I both know Mike Olson at Cloudera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I had actually, I went to Cloudera in like super early days. This is when we were at Fishworks. This would have been like 2000 and like seven, 2008. Mm-hmm. Because um, we were, like Jeff Hammerbacher was there, and we knew we knew a couple of folks. Yeah. And Amr was there, a couple of a couple of folks that were there. And I think I, I went by the office, and there were like five people there that worked at Cloudera. And this is in the old uh, Fry's Electronics. This was in Berlin Game. Oh, oh, okay. And I feel that they it was where we need Mike here. I feel that they went through like six offices in like four months. So this was a very brief stop. It was a super weird office. I can definitely see why it was, it was like, uh, it, it kind of defies description. It was like the set of WKRP that, that is not, that is, <laughs> right. yeah, you know what, that, that, that's not a clarifying comment, but so it, it, a super weird office. And the, uh, I had just come from this interesting interview with Arthur Whitney that had me questioning everything. And I, that was like, my opener was like, what is software? And we spent like 45 minutes trying to define software and any definition of software, it was just, it was too easy to, to refute to your point about systems to the point where like Mike took me aside and he's like, are you high right now? Are you on drugs? Like, what are you, <laughs> have, have you like, what are you doing? Why are you here? What is happening right now? Right. Is it 2 a.m.? Is it 2 a.m.? You're very high. Are you extraordinarily high in my office at like 2 p.m. on a Tuesday? Like, get out of here. Like, let these guys, anyway. So it's like, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm high on life, Mike. I'm just high on software right now. High as a kite. Um, but okay, so systems, so I, I, with, the, with the kind of the caveat that I apparently I can't even define software, let alone systems, I do think that uh, when we talk about systems, we are talking about software, software interactions. We're talking about software that runs other software is my most concise definition. Software that is responsible for the, the creation of other software, runs other software, executes other software, 
debugs other software, that it, 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 the, the interaction is not with an end user, but with that, that software, software interaction. How bad is that? Yeah, I see. It, it's, it's better than what I had because the, the, the not as good definition that I was monkeying with was anything that's not really sitting at the top of the stack. And that's really insufficient, which is why I, I like yours better. Um, because my definition includes lots of libraries and, and frameworks, which, which uh, I don't know, felt a little squishier, but, but yours where it has more to do with the execution of other software um, is, is interesting. So I think it'd be inclusive of a lot is, of those things. Is, yeah. Is LS systems programming? Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I, 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 what about X? What about X term? Are you high right now, Josh? <laughs> are you on drugs? Are you? Are you, are you no, into I, just, space I high? feel like this is. Well, I'm. I'm in Australia. I don't know. That so, sounds... I, I, I will say yes to X term, but I would say that like it's very easy because we don't feel good about these definitions to go from you know. Uh, you know, into into suddenly is Minecraft systems programming, and and feeling like compelled to say yes to that um, is a is a web browser systems programming. Oh, see, that's what I'm saying. So, oh, man. Yeah, because like you got like your. I mean, clearly you have your. I'm, I'm clearly I'm just here, I'm, in there. I'm yeah. here to ruin ruin the space. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly right, right. So so I know we're like going into CSS's systems programming. I understand that's what you're tr- you're you're getting us towards. It totally is though. Ooh, that's. I mean. <laughs> okay, so, so I, I okay, feel like so, systems so, so with, programming define... is is an approach as much as anything. Yeah, else. yeah, yeah. I, mean, I agree. So with, really? with, 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 let's define it by some of its attributes, Adam. Because you were saying earlier that like yes. I, I know some of the attributes about it. Because I I definitely feel like I I have got a handle on some of these amorphous attributes. What, what are some of the attributes you think about? Well, uh, I mean, I'm embarrassed that, that what I kept on coming up with was related to oxide values, and in particular, rigor and curiosity. Hmm. And uh, I think maybe less in terms of systems programming, but more in terms of systems programming, um, you know, like the, the mindset of the author. And, and I think that um, curiosity about the, the systems below and above you and about um, kind of understanding the nuances of those. And then rigor in terms of thinking through, uh, you know, not just the happy path. Yeah. But I think one of the characteristics of systems programming is thinking about all the ways that things can go wrong and handling those in, in ways that are comprehensible. Yeah, that's a very good point. Where like software gets actually a lot harder when our expectations are really high for it. When we actually expect the software to work all the time and not just kind of seem to work in a lab, we, we, there's a bunch of actually really hard problems that we need to go solve. So, you know, I like that. I also think that, like, system software, and you're saying maybe a more positive kind of uh, amorphous feeling than I've got. System software is hard to love. It's hard to appreciate. Because I feel like, you know, we talk about these systems demos. Um, the we, we like to give systems demos inside of Oxide. And it, to, to the untrained or even trained eye, perhaps, they, they might look very unimpressive to see a machine boot, to see a packet go over the network, to see... A, to see these things that, that are seemingly simple but are fiendishly complicated. And I feel like that's kind of getting into your curiosity point too, Adam, where like in order to be successful with systems programming, you constantly need to be kind of pulling at these abstractions because the abstractions are actually 
trying to seal you off. The, the abstractions are trying to get you to not think about them. And yet so much of system software is understanding these tr the, the abstractions, understanding the interactions across the abstractions, evolving the abstractions. It's like you, you, you can't be content to, you really do have to understand that you are at a, at a new way you described it. Like you've got to understand the software below you and above you. Yeah. Is this a big mess yeah. at this point? Are we, are we like, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I get, I kept on coming to like the justice uh, Potter Stewart line, you know it when you see it. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not sure that that's, that everyone is going to agree on any particular body of software being uh, system software or not. But, but I think that, you know, the, the mindset and the approach of, uh, of robustness and of sort of, Complexity and perhaps constraint, and this is something we've talked about on a, a bunch of previous spaces, where I think perhaps systems programming is also defined by, it, you, you know, the constraints around you that it that hmm. um, that there are kind of spaces you need to fit into or uh, compatibility you need to consider above. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, is hardware facing software always system software? Hardware facing software. I, I, so, uh, that is to say, software that directly is uh, is directly on the metal. Whether it, it is in a privileged mode or not, whether it is, I feel that's a trick question. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so tough too, because like, for, first of all, I mean, I was thinking about the privileged mode because I, I, you know, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, when when we were starting, uh, there was sort of this clarity of is the priv bit set or not, and now, like, what does that even mean? Like you're, you know, you're sitting in some virtualization layer. And it's like, what priv bit are you? The, the, the priv bit is a lie. The priv bit is yeah. Right. It's, it's right. You're you're talking to virtual and, hardware. And it's like, well, okay. If I'm talking to hardware, it's like, well, it, you know, does that mean that anything that is compiled into an ELF binary is systems programming? Because like that's sort of talking to hardware, I guess, right? Like machine code instructions. Yeah, and I, I feel that, like, also going back, I'm just trying to go back to your, I like your rigor and curiosity point. Because system software, it's hard, right? Can we agree on that? It is hard. I mean, yes, I think so. Right. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me. As, as a subset of all software, it's hard. I mean. The, the, right. I mean, I feel that, like, it, it's hard in a particular way. Like, numerical programming, I think, is extraordinarily hard in a different way. System software. I mean, is that uh, no? I think that's absolutely right, and I think that in the same way that uh, like user interface programming is hard. It's really hard. And I think in, in the same way, way that um, I, I mean, you probably have this experience with user interface programming and with systems programming, where to a person who is incurious or kind of you know not adept, like there are uh, you know I've seen um, engineers produce user interfaces where it's like you know the Things aren't right, and they kind of don't see it. And I think in the same way, I've seen people produce system software, which fails in a bunch of ways. And it's it, until you point it out, it's hard for them to see it. So I think that it's it's a skill certainly that can be taught, um, like all these others, but hard in ways that is differentiated, and where you know folks have different levels of interest in getting into those details. Yeah, <laughs> stuff can really be taught. You know, like. Hey, hey, Dan, you're very faint. Is this better? A little bit, yeah. Okay. What I was saying is I'm not sure that user interface stuff can really be taught. It, it, or if it can be taught, it, it, it's taught in the same way that art is taught. 
I've, I've often thought that if somebody said to me, hey, Dan, go write user interface stuff, I would probably fail miserably. Not because I wouldn't try, but rather because I just don't think that I have either the aesthetic or artistic ability to create a user interface that's truly good. You know what I mean? And I do think, yeah, Dan, I do know what you mean. And I kind of think that, like, but in system software, we do create a lot of interfaces, but that we are often creating them for effectively ourselves or our doppelgangers, where yeah. so it's easier for us to kind of intuit about the abstraction to create, I think, the interface to create. I think both, both of those areas have a strong requirement for taste to produce good artifacts. But I think there's a difference that Brian hit on, which is that we create those interfaces, but we do it for people like us, right? Like other systems people. And and let's be honest, like we, there are a lot of interfaces that were designed by people with exceptional taste in, say, the 1970s or 80s that really haven't changed very much. You know, look at like the read system call, for example. It takes three arguments. It takes a file descriptor, a pointer, and a length of a buffer. Like... That was brilliant at the time, but you, you kind of, like, how do you improve on that, you know? Yeah. So, okay, so in terms of, I mean, I, I don't know if we've, if we've I don't know. Well, certainly we, no answers there, right? <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. but, but, but I think, like, to, you know, in terms of some of the characteristics that the person who, who DM'd you was talking about, they're probably talking about things like embedded programming, like kernel programming, or building compilers or virtual machines, things of that sort, I'd imagine. Yes. And I think that the, I mean, to me, for whatever reason, I guess it's like, well, so let's talk about actually how we got interested in this. In it, because I feel that because system software is, it's hidden from view, right? I think that this is one, of, I, I do feel that like one of the attributes of it is it is hard to appreciate. You need to get kind of into it to really understand how complicated these things are. And I feel like there's this moment in one's education, be it formal or informal, where you realize like, holy God, I can't believe anything works at all. I can't believe that like when I sit here in a prompt and you know get a directory listing, the amount of complexity that's happening, like every time pitch perfect to deliver that. It, I just feel like that there's like, there's gotta be that kind of a moment where one says like, that is either gives you a, a just a pounding headache, and you're like, I never want to think about this again, or I think Adam, to your kind of curious curiosity and, and rigor point, you think to yourself like, Wow, that's super interesting. I actually really I, I want to dig in. I want it, like I bet there's a lot of other stuff I don't know, and kind of taking you down the rabbit hole. I feel like is, is that a fair common theme about how people got into this? Uh, can I say that I remember the systems we love talk on YouTube that said what happens when you exit with zero? Do I remember the title correctly? And when I saw that talk, I was like, oh, okay, so a lot of things can go wrong. How is this actually still working? One. And two, apparently, uh, well, the, 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 the person who was showing it was from Joyant. I remember that correct, right? And they were showing it on the smart OS uh, code base and like how much legacy is actually in there for all of these years. Like Dan said, like things don't ever change. That, that's also fascinating. But what's, what's more, also more fascinating is um, well, not fat. No, well, actually I do have a question about the fascination on that part is uh, since you guys been in this thing for 25 years, has it actually changed like a lot or 
or only in the hardware, you know, the the privileged stuff, or only the virtualization, or only abstractions? Is is there an actual major change uh, that has happened or will happen? I mean, Brian, I don't know if you're going to have to say it at the same time. <laughs> yeah. But I assume we're both thinking Rust. Yeah. 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 Damn. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, yes. It, I think Rust is... I do think Rust is a very big deal. Um, and I think that the... the uh, Rust is also a reflection of a lot of big changes. Um, that the I, I think that it, systems programming has changed a lot. I think that one of the major ways that it's changed. This is not a deep thought, but Rust does reflect this as well. Uh, that whole open source thing is a really good idea as it turns out. And the and this kind of gets to internally the, the kind of a point that you were making about these, you know, the, this, these kind of old software systems that are still functional. I mean, to me, another light that went on in system software was I was accustomed to when I was just a kind of writing my own programs, that kind of everything was broken all the time. And as you get deeper and deeper into system software, you realize like, oh, wow, there's a lot of software down here that actually has been working correctly or working as is, I guess, in some cases for a really, really, really long time. And that kind of, Adam, to your point about rigor, kind of changed my own expectations for the kind of software that I could write, where I thought like, wait a minute, I, we can actually write perfect software. Why not? And I feel that that there's a lot of software in C that is going to stand a, a long test of time, but C, as we all know, has got some really serious shortcomings that make it hard to create or harder, I think, to create truly persistent artifacts than we get in Rust. So uh, just a quick diversion on that, Brian, you remember when I rewrote NoHup, uh, Solaris is utility. Yes. yes. Okay. So we, I rewrote <laughs> NoHup. Do you want to explain NoHup a little bit? So NoHup is a command that you use to uh, to you know, hang to background a process that you've, you've run interactively. So the canonical use case is like I, I run a long running build. I forgot to put it under NoHup, or I forgot to run it in a uh, screen session, and then I need to go home for the night, and I don't want to pack up my laptop and, and kill the the session. So I run NoHup. Uh, minus p to background it, and that was the the utility that I added. And now, hup being sig hup, it's the hang up signal right. that dates from. I mean, I think it is signal one, right? It dates from the very dawn of Unix. Right. And, and this utility I rewrote was written by Joseph Asana in, I mean, just the first like moments after the Big Bang of Unix, before the flood, for sure. Right. Uh, so th- now we're talking like seventies, and I just want to point out, Brian that it has been 20 years since I did that. Yeah. Just to like show how, how goddamn old we are and how like... durable the software is. Yeah. Tom, did you know, I should get Tom in here. I, I don't know if, if Tom knew Joseph Osana, um, but Joseph Osana uh, died tragically. He died young. Um, yeah. in, 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 in a car crash, as I recall. Car crash or a heart attack? Heart attack. Osana died of a heart attack. No, there you go. That, that we were waiting for, all right, yeah, hagiography. In, in 77. In 77, yeah. Did you know him, Tom? Yeah, he was there the summer I worked, and he, he died that fall, I think. Oh, wow. And, but so he died with, like, a lot of software that n- people were not able to rewrite. So, I, Adam, I recall joking with you yeah. that you're going to be haunted by Osama's ghost. Yeah, and that has borne out, and it's been terrible ever for the last 20 years. 
Oh, really? Does he visit you three times a night? Did you get, <laughs> you get like, is it like past, present, future? I mean, what's it? Like, oh, hey, Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, it's, so, a, it's a little bit like a Casper the Friendly Ghost kind of thing. Time to go to bed, right? So, so Brian, you, you know, in terms of your own entry into systems programming, you, you were writing as a, as a high school student, you were writing a bunch of games, as I recall. I was doing a bunch of just bullshit. I mean, I, I, <laughs> the, the, I, I feel like a lot of people, I, thought I understood computer science when I didn't. Well, but, okay, but you were, you were writing some code and you went to college thinking that you were, you know, maybe going to be an economics major. I was going to be an economics major, yes. Okay, so, yeah. uh, so then what, what opened your eyes? Well, I think that the understanding that there was an actual discipline behind computer science was op- eye-opening number one. It's like, oh my God, this is actually like real. There's like actually, you, you can like reason about algorithms. And I thought that was just, that was amazing. And we can actually, it's not just programming. There's actually computer science. So that was kind of like, also I flunked my first economics exam, which also helped. I had a C me written on top of the, my, I had convinced my roommate to take this very, uh, quantitative intensive micro course and i had never done partial differential equations so i was like learning partial differential equations on the fly as an idiot 18 year old or whatever and i just remember getting the exam back and this guy very in the kind of very old school fashion plotted in chalk um all of the scores on the exam and all of them are like clustering in kind of the 90s and 80s, and then maybe just one in the 70s, and maybe like one in the 60s. And then there were two little dots next to one another at like 33. And that was me and my roommate <laughs> who had had gotten a different 33% of the exam correct. Like we definitely did not. I mean, there's, we got the exact same score, but but like between us, if we combined our knowledge, we would get a D minus on that exam, basically. So that helps that, that you know d- d- don't uh, don't underestimate the power of the universe to kind of point you in one direction be like nice. um but so th- th- that was kind of realization number one i think realization number two though was when and i and i feel like i got very lucky I, this happened all very young I, I got a very clear sense of what i wanted to go do at an, a very young age and i think this is very unusual um but taking an operating systems course for me, and this is why I do think that like formal pedagogy is actually important, even if you do it online or in an informal capacity, you know, Ben Eater or what have you. Um, I, when you kind of sit down and are forced to do a course at a lab intensive course, I this is just this moment of like, oh my god, I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. I thought I had some idea about the way computers work, and I have no idea how computers work. And no idea how system software works. And little did I know that that feeling would typify me for the next 30 years. <laughs> I feel like at Oxide, I'm always like, well, it looks like I picked the wrong day to know how computers work because I'm learning about something, you know, totally some other aspect that I do not know at all. And I wonder how I've gotten this far not understanding this dimension of how computers work or how system software works. So that for me was the big like light going on of the, this is why I like your curiosity point because it did actually really arouse my curiosity of, wow, I knew so little and now I want to learn so much more and I want to affect these abstractions. And for me, the ultimate system software demo is the linker assignment we did in that, in that course where you wrote a linker. Because of course, and that to me is like, what do you mean you write a linker? It's like, well, a linker is just a program. It just like reads things off of the disk and like does some things into memory and then like jumps to an address. 
but that was just like I, I I mean I felt like von Neumann was sitting in my lap like whispering into my ear. I felt like it was just like it was hot and heavy romance with John von Neumann and his computer. <laughs> Lovely. You know, that's I, a great image. Yeah, maybe that was a little too much. I got no, like I'm, I'm here for it. Johnny Von Neumann biting on my earlobe maybe a little bit too much. But the, so it, like the that movie with like that movie with the pottery. Yeah, like Ghost. That's exactly what it was. It was like Ghost, but it was but Patrick Swayze was being played by John Von Neumann. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, and I was Demi Moore, and and the pottery was a Laker. There we go. Well, thanks, Josh. <laughs> I think we, <laughs> I think we cleared that Nailed up. it. Nailed I'm, it. I'm here to help. Yeah, there you go. So that to me, and that, and that was like this big revelation. And then there were a couple other revelations that came out of that of like, I decided I thought I was going to get a PhD and then I actually wanted to go do industrial system software. But the one thing that I heard that I think a lot of people have heard is nobody does this. Like you should, there is no, there there. Like there's no, there's no career for you in system software. And I feel that this comes out of the fact that system software is so hidden that the people that work on it are often hidden. And so people don't appreciate, and it's like, no, like this is really important stuff. And a lot of people do work on it. So well, that that's relative. I mean, it, it took me something like 20 years to, to, you know, gently maneuver the entry vehicle to the point where I was actually writing system software, like of the kind that I wanted to. Uh, so and, Dan, 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 talk about your story a little bit, because you, you've got definitely an unrealized well, story. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so I got really interested in operating systems when I was in high school. And in, in large part because I wanted to understand how the system worked. And I, like really what I wanted to understand was this notion of multiprocessing. And, you know, on a uniprocessor system, like what does that mean? How does the operating system do that? And, you know, eventually somebody told me, well, there's a clock. And, like, you know, that clock ticks every so often. And on a clock tick, you get an interrupt and you do something. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, that was a huge revelation. I was like, well, how do you do a context switch? And then... Eventually, I sat down and I, I wrote a, a coroutine, jump routine in assembly language for 68,000. And I was like, oh, that's how you do it. You know? And then I was like, well, how do you switch from one process to another? It's like, well, you know, really, it turns out in the kernel, there's a, a, effectively a thread which represents every process. And you trap into the kernel and do something. And then you do a context switch from one thread to another. And now you're running in the kernel. And now you switch an address space. It's like, well, how does that work? Because I was in a different address space. It's like, well, the kernel is mapped into every address space, every, every process. And it was like, oh, okay. You know, so I kind of got these little inklings of how this stuff worked. And that, to me, was very compelling. And I was like, well, I want to do this. But at the time where I was really interested in working on that, you know, or by the time I, I, I was in a position where I was, you know, okay, this is really what I want to do, it was so commodified, especially with Linux and open source, that in many cases, people were just like, no, we're not going to work on that because that's not interesting. And we don't generate a lot of revenue for that. And so I think if you look at the industry writ large, you, you have you know, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of programmers who are working on all sorts of things, but they're not doing that sort of low, you know, like or there are people who are doing that low level software development, but th their numbers are much, much smaller. It's a, it's a tiny fraction of a percent of the complete of the total industry. And then, so, it, and so, but then you were doing all that in high school, like all the, the 68K context switching code and so on. When, this is like before or after I, 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 No, I, I wrote, I wrote the, eventually I wrote the context switching code kind of after high school. But yeah, I mean, I was, I was in high school when I was trying to figure out how all these things sort of fit together and, and, and reading operating systems textbooks and, and kind of hanging around the local university. And the sysadmins there were kind of, 
my buddies, and so they gave me accounts on a bunch of the Unix machines and so forth, and and the Vaxen and and the PDP10 and all of that sort of stuff. And so I got to kind of play around with all of that gear. But I, you know, as a high school student, I didn't really get it at the level that I get it now, for sure. Um, and then when I went off to industry and I was like, I want to work on this, there was just no space to do that, you know. Yeah. And so I ended up like when I when I got when I worked at Google, for example. Most of my career there was working in, in at, at the user space layer. I, I never worked on web stuff. I, again, I don't. I just don't think I'm talented in the in the right kinds of ways to be successful at that sort of thing. But I spent a lot of time working on code that kind of would, you know, take an RPC and extract some arguments and do something with them and call another RPC or something along those lines. That's kind of most of what programmers at Google do. But th that qualifies as system software, doesn't it? Does it not? Is that not system no, software? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. All right so your definition is yeah, more, more restrictive, maybe. Well, I mean, my definition of system software is system software is software that we write for the use of other software systems, right? Which is <laughs> kind, of, okay. kind of sounds circular and roundabout, but... Yeah, know, that's sort of my Okay. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And, and so in that sense, I mean, like, the stuff I was working on was what we, I think, back in the day would have called application-level software. Um, yeah. you know, as distinct from the system software, which is like for the running of the computer and, and, and the consumption of other programs. Like you write a text editor or something like that. To me, that's system software. Yeah. You know, because you're writing that for a programmer or, you know, a, a user in that sort of category versus if you're writing like something which is designed to be used by an end user or, you know, a transaction processing system or something like that, that doesn't feel like system software in the same way. Yeah. Fair enough. All right, so I want and Trinic, I want to get to you in a second here. Before I do though, Patrick, if you're here, I wonder if you might uh, give your story um, because I think it's actually I want I want to get to kind of answering this question in the DMs about like what what can people how do, do you kind of break into system software? And Patrick, I don't know if you you want to talk about your story a bit because I think it's it's pretty interesting. Sure, although I'm I'm not certain that it's it answers that question so much. I mean. Um, but I, I was working doing uh, system administration stuff at a serial company here in the Midwest um, and started doing, I, I, unlike your experience of having like a really crisp operating systems course that kind of crystallized all that interest for you, um, the, the OS course at Iowa State was fine, but it, it, it was not, I, you know, I, I hear about, you know, like the folks from Brown talking about the OS course there. And it sounds very magical. And, and the course that I took was not that. So <laughs> less magical. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it which I think is awesome. honestly, yeah, I think is honestly, I think the, more typical. One yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is the norm. And, and I've sat in, in a surprising number of OS classes in, in like, like schools that are renowned for computer science and seen some very odd descriptions to sophomores and freshmen. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was kind of much more abstract and like the big project was just like write a shell and it, it, it just wasn't, you know, you, you talk about like scheduling in the abstract and paging in the ab abstract, but it, it wasn't like, you know, go implement part of an operating system, Yeah, um, which I, I think make, makes a lot of that more crisp. So, but, I mean, that, that there were there were like extracurriculars and, and things through, I, I worked as a web developer and like, had a group of friends that did like a bunch of goofy stuff with computers in a lab um, that sort of maintained that interest. I, I thought that Adam's point about um, 
about rigor and curiosity, I found to be very on point for getting into system stuff. Um, so when, when I was doing kind of sysadmin ops work, um, the, it was often like we, we would have systems that were misbehaving and it was like, how, how do you gain visibility into this? And, and these were, a lot of it was like HPOX machines. So it, it wasn't, wasn't like open source where you can go read the source code to the thing. It was like, here are the tools that they give you, but like, how can you, how can you understand what's going on in the system? Um, but from the standpoint of, of not a system software developer, but like an operations person, like what, what tools do they, they give you for that sort of thing? So, and Patrick, that's really interesting because when you're debugging a problem like that, especially in the proprietary era, but even, but now as well, I mean, you, when you're debugging something, you're debugging a system that's not working properly, you really are right at that confluence of rigor and curiosity. Um, where, yeah. and you, you are, are and I, I mean, okay, like, yeah, I'm talking my book, but I really do feel that one of the things that typifies system software is a real emphasis on debugging and, that, and the methodology of debugging. The idea that like, hey, this stuff is knowable. You can actually, like something that looked like it was totally magical that you had no understanding of, you were able to grind away for some period and like, oh, we figured out what it was. I mean, Project, you must have had that happen a couple of times. I assume that that was, is that where kind of the light was beginning to go on of like, wow, this is really interesting down here? So I mean, like I, I, I was interested in system stuff and, and trying to understand it certainly wasn't, it, it, it wasn't something that like I was being paid to do, right? It, it was just right. like, the system would be misbehaving, especially for, for the things like the, the HPUX machines, you're kind of at the mercy of HP for, again, they, you, you're not reading the source code. You're, you're, you're not going to get to the, to ground on a problem like you would if you were the developer of the software or had access to the source. But it was, you know, like when we would, we would have like a performance problem or a correctness problem, it was like, try and get as many answers as you could out of, you know, if, if you found a, an experienced um, engineer that you were working with, like they would give you answers and, and that would offer kind of a, a better window into what it was you were seeing or, you know, what, why it was happening, how, how you might avoid that in the future, that sort of thing. And then, so uh, you should talk about how we crossed paths initially, which was how many years, is that, is that 10 years ago now? I feel like it might be um it's getting there getting there so i had been working on um there was a need in the company a non-wholly owned subsidiary uh at general mills needed access to part of the active directory for like an address book thing um and i i had found uh mark's work of ldap.js which was like the only means by which you could um kind of conjure up a ldap server of like arbitrary data, not not like open LDAP or anything. I I wanted to do filtering on the fly of the LDAP from our Active Directory so that the this non wholly owned subsidiary could like have an address book but not get everything in AD. Um, so I was writing patches to LDAP JS so that I could do these goofy goofy things to filter an address book um, and. Apparently, y'all at Joint uh, appreciated that work. Uh, definitely. So, I mean, there was, there's a bunch there. I, I don't know if you know this story. I don't know if you knew this. No, not at all. This yeah. sounds to me. Yeah, yeah. So, the 
I mean, first of all, like you are, do not adjust your Twitter spaces. You are hearing correctly. This is an LDAP server written in JavaScript. If you were just wondering if that was like you were hallucinating that or not, it was. I mean, it was. It was. It was the fashion of the day. Um, and so, this is an LDAP server written in Node. And Patrick, I think that there's a bunch that's actually really interesting about that. So, first of all, like you had this problem that is a pretty filthy problem, and. I think you've, you came up with like a pretty, I mean, it's an inter, I mean, I think it, it, it would have been a less curious person would have been like, I don't know, I'm going to get some proprietary software. I don't know. Like, I actually don't know how you would solve that problem because the, as you said, the existing LDAP servers weren't going to cut it. Um, how would you have solved it without LDAP.js? I mean, I guess you. I, like, I think you would have had to like replicate out of AD into some custom, like you, you would, have, would have had to use client software to like periodically replicate but like then it's, it's how often do you replicate? Is it out of date? Like I, I didn't have the the privileges with the Windows folks to like get some stream of data, so you would have needed to pull it. And being like a big corporate environment, Active Directory was just absolutely massive, right? Like thirty thousand users, sixty thousand groups. It was like you you don't want to be walking over th this thing <laughs> once every five minutes or whatever. So right, it, like acting as a server that proxied requests was like clearly the way to go. And I sure JavaScript wouldn't have been my, my first choice, but it was for something that could do that was like the only choice in that moment. Patrick, yeah. did your colleagues at the time, did they, did they agree with this approach? Did, was it obvious to everyone or. Uh, I, I, I just went and did this. Yeah, right. Just solved the problem. <laughs> right. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. That, that, and that, and I believe people it. were, people were thrilled that the problem was solved. It was like, right. I, I don't want to hear how it was solved. Like, right. I, 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 you know what? I, I feel like I this is, this is my experience of being your colleague now too. Right. Like, exactly. There was a problem and now it's solved. Or maybe I never even knew that there was a problem. Right. Uh, I, and I, you could just imagine being like, no, no, we, of course we don't have an LDAP server written in JavaScript. Patrick, tell them what you did. You didn't, it's like, no, I, that's what I did. Like, oh my God, wait, what? Um, but so the part of the reason I think that your, that story is so interesting, Patrick, is because you were using the software as open source and you started contributing patches to it. And meanwhile, on the other end of this, we're like, who the hell is this person? Like all of a sudden, we're getting like not just you know it's kind of like not like easy stuff or like you know kind of the, the kind of the, the the drive by fixes, but getting some like some deep stuff that was like clearly showing some real use of this. And I just remember Mark Cabbage coming to me and like I don't got no idea who this person is, but we've absolutely got to hire them because they are like I'm going through the code and the code is like really clean and. Patrick, you and I think, and I mean, funny because Josh is here as well, because Josh, I think you were about the same time, um, also came in through open source. Um, and you, uh, and Adam, I don't know if you knew this, but Josh had done the original um, SVN work for, um, for KVM, right, Josh? I think I'm remembering that correctly. On, on Illumos. On Lewis, yeah, because right. I was because yeah. the only machine I had was an AMD machine, and I was extremely sad that Smartos didn't work on. And but is same kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's a little bit different in that you were it was more coming out of a community as opposed to solving a problem at work. I think Josh, right? I think that was more just like this is the machine. Um, I got. Yeah, I mean, it was at the time it was the it was the 
the large scale distraction that I needed to prevent myself from doing my final year project at uni. <laughs> there you go. Right. Um, but you like, got this. I, I did. Sorry. I did get it done in the end. <laughs> uh, it being uni or it being the AMD support. The, I guess the both. degrees. Yeah. yeah no. The I, degrees. I mean, I'm here now, so that's. You know, but the um, but it, like I had been in the open source community since that was started which was like 2005, I think. It, it, and, but then, I think it, and then we started Illumos, like when Oracle did the thing that they did. <laughs> they did the thing that they did, the Oracle thing that they do. But I think it's it, the unpleasantness. Yeah. The unpleasantness. And Josh, do you, is our first conversation as vivid for you as it is for me? Yeah, I remember you said, we talked on the, we were on <laughs> Skype and you were in an airport and you I was were surprised at the fidelity of the, the fidelity of the phone call. I think Look, you said, it, it's, it's like you're inside my brain. Okay, that's what you remember from that story? Is like That's what I remember from that. Did, yeah. did I talk about John von Neumann? Like, was there any... any, uh, <laughs> any well, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't see him, obviously. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so what I remember from that conversation is me saying, I just need to ascertain that you're the same person that did the this work that I'm looking at. Because the work... Right. Is and I feel like Patrick, it's in your case as well. I mean, I, I definitely. You are asking him to cut himself in half and prove that he's not made of cake. I, 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 that's exactly what I asked him to do, and unfortunately, he did cut himself in half and grievously injured himself. But he, but he was not made of cake, so we hired him. Not a win. Perfect. But then several um, months later, after I've been reassembled, that's right. But I think that in both of these cases, because I, I do think that this is like this is actionable. I feel for people looking to under. I mean, th- th- this is where open source has changed. Like I feel everything about the way we do software development and the ability to uh to to find someone over the internet who you have not even in the same country in your case josh not the same part of the country in 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 your case patrick someone i've got like no overlap with i mean patrick yours in particular because like we've gotten we had like zero overlap but we shared a a zeitgeist and ethos and interest and uh and obviously like we we hired you at, at Joint. I mean, obviously, you're a terrific at Joint. And then you, you know, kept going deeper and deeper and deeper into, into kernel work. And I remember, and Patrick, I'm not sure if I'm making this up or not, but I do feel there was a time when you were like, I just, I didn't envision myself. Like, I'm actually doing kernel development. I, 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 for whatever reason, I had this kind of mystique about it. I didn't envision myself doing it. But, hey, here I am. As it turns out, it's just a program. Yeah, I mean, I, I came in doing mostly Upstack stuff at least for the first little while before um, before you suggested working on LX, which is where I, I got into the kernel stuff. And yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's your line or Josh's line about kernel programming where it's it just, is, a big C all, program. just a basic program. Yeah, and it's true. It, it is a big, complicated asynchronous C program. That's exactly, yeah, exactly right. And then, of course, like as Adam, to your earlier point, like the kernel's not even in charge of anything anymore because it's sitting on virtual hardware. I mean, it obviously is, but it's sitting in its own little sculpted reality. And there's, it turns out there are tons of layers, previously hitherto unseen layers beneath it um, that are also really interesting. Um, so I, I feel that, I mean, Patrick, would you counsel someone, I mean, based on your experience? Because it feels to me like something we can take away from that is it is actually really worth not just understanding what a, what a body of software is, but really getting deeply in 
to a community that you find interesting for whatever reason and get to the point where you're actually like helping them debug the software. I think everyone loves someone who's helping them debug software. Is that a fair inference? Yeah, I, I may, I, it, it's so hard to, to make generalizations about a, a path to success there, I think. Right. I, I, I agree. With I know. And, 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 and like, I know that I was extremely fortunate to have all of the spare capacity in my life and, and all of the like advantages that allowed me to spend a bunch of time doing frivolous, like non-university related stuff, for instance, like on, on the side, because it was interesting to me and, and because it helped me with something that I was trying to do. But like, if I'd had to work two jobs or something like already, I would definitely wouldn't have had time to do all that stuff. So it's clearly like not a one size fits all approach, right. I think. I, I think it's also really hard to generalize because a lot of this is very dependent on community. And I think, you know, much of this discussion, just given people's backgrounds, is sort of gravitating towards the Illumos community and, and things that came out of Joint and so forth. But it, elsewhere in the systems world, things are not quite so collegial very often. <laughs> It, you know, like, like seriously, and and I, I think that it can be really difficult to break into that community unless you're kind of already somebody in the community. So which, I think that that's not just collegial, but we're a very small pond. And like the LDAP.js pond was even smaller than the Illumos pond, for instance. The LDAP.js pond had, had two fish in it. Like you, you as a you know a person of reasonable competence and and drive and with a problem to solve can show up and become an outsized influence in that pond generally by merely by being easy to work with and doing lots of good things, which is probably not true in Linux, for instance, just because there are so many voices in that room, it would be hard to be noticed and prominent without also having done other brand building work on your own. I think. Yeah, well, and I, I, which I think is actually an important point. I love small communities. I think people get too hung up on the size of communities. Small communities are often amazing, and the and Dan totally agree with you. There's there's plenty of bad behavior in groups and so on, but small communities can be something to gravitate towards. And again, you, one should not be you know one should be going to the start of, uh, of interest. But and, and, and important to to just hit on the head again, um, motivated by something you're building or doing, and and something that's. You know, in Patrick's case, motivated by something his job needed, although they didn't they didn't know how he was doing it. Or in Josh's case, in his own self interest or a personal interest. But um, you know, I think showing up to a community and saying what can I do is is a tough way to get in. And I yeah. think that in particular, that's going to be tough. You know, in, in Linux. But if you're if you've got some interesting problem, I think small or large community. If you're doing something that is interesting to you. Um, you're going to produce some artifacts that are interesting to other members of those communities. Totally. Uh, and Tranik, I know you had your hand up a long time ago, so let's get to you and then, and then Simeon. And Tranik, sorry about that if you're still there. Uh, I'm here, but I, I, I'm here. Well, last time in the space, I fall asleep, by the way, but now... <laughs> well, listen, that's why I wanted to, you know, I was trying to find the rouse button, but I know it, it is, I mean, people should know that it is, like, what time is it? Is it three in the morning there, four in the morning? I mean, it is, uh, it's 4.51. 451 exactly so there's, yes. there's good reason for it uh i think i forgot oh yeah i just remembered so um so we have a a team in the company that basically their only job is to write the trace code well it's a one 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 man team to be honest and uh he was always you know saying in his like slack bio like uh, uh system programming wannabe and i just want to like 
tell him that that is system programming. You are doing yeah. system programming. Uh, so my question now, is that system programming? And are we in a state that if someone is not writing code for the user, we should always ask ourselves, is this system programming? I mean, obviously for me, I think that is absolutely system programming, even though he that he's writing in a non-Turing complete language. And uh, But I think it is definitely <laughs> system programming. Because I think it is, you know, again, Adam, circling around on your rubric of, of rigor and curiosity, like those are being exhibited in spades in someone who is instrumenting the system, be it D-Tracer, BPF, or how you're, however you're doing it, writing that, the, that kind of meta code or meta thought to go debug the system, I think is absolutely systems programming, in my and, opinion. And, and, and... And, and one, uh, so my, my last question is, I had the uh, honor to be a, I think it's called a TA, a teacher assistant in a university for an OS class. And uh, what I realized is that um, students don't have interest in like low level stuff. Is, is there, is like, why is that? Is it because it's less demo-y? And on the point that Dan said about is not being profitable, I just realized that we are maybe right now in a state where it's like the, exactly the opposite. For example, let's take Netflix with FreeBSD. The more they invested in FreeBSD as a system, in system programming, the more they got out of it, you know, like bandwidth-wise and performance, stuff like that. Uh, are we like reversing the action of system programming to revenue in, in this age? Also, with Rust coming in, making it more safe and easier and faster to write these software. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, look. You know, I, I think one of the things with a, with like a Netflix is that there's kind of you know half a dozen companies or something in the world that operate at that scale. And for those companies, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to hire a lot of system systems programmers. I mean, Microsoft might be the canonical example here. You know, I mean, it's like they actually market and sell an operating system that, that people, you know, continue to pay good money for. So, you know, surely they need to hire a lot of systems people. And, you know, but like most places are just not like that. And, you know, it, for, for a lot of these places, like, like Netflix, it makes sense because they have this, you know, they can leverage economies of scale, but a much smaller organization cannot. And for them, it makes a lot more sense to treat, say, an operating system like a commodity. Well, but it, I mean, I do think though, Dan, that 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 system software, software that software that is responsible for running the other software, is very important in many different spots. And there's there's more demand, I think, still than there is supply of those folks. And so I I think in terms of your question about like why are why do students seem incurious about it? Uh, my answer to that is students need to be just just putting myself at, at when I was you know eighteen years old. I needed to be broken a little bit. I needed to appreciate that all of these abstractions that had been created for me to, to give me this kind of delusion of how simple the software is because the, the, the abstractions are simple. Just like Dan, your, you know, your, your read system calls, like it's a, it's a straightforward abstraction. It's a simple abstraction and, you know, on and on and on up the stack, we give people these insulating, simple abstractions and then we say, like, well, why are you incurious about all the software below? And I think people are like, wait, what software below? What, what's going on? It's like, you know, we need to actually, like, you've spent all of your life as a, as, as a programmer, as someone experimenting with software, 
being insulated by these abstractions and now we actually need to break them down and we actually need to to show you that this is actually these are very complicated systems and we can't insulate you from them any longer. so i think that and that requires a great teacher i think i do think that i'm my i guess i'm an old schooler in that regard that i think uh great teachers can make a really profound difference for the right person yeah, we, we ended up having only one person who got interested and he ended up writing a, a, uh, a package manager for a language called Oberon, which I, I thought... No, nice. There, there you go. Yeah. Which, yeah, but, but that only one person out of like 200. But, but it, it was good enough, you know, to have something that their small community of 15 people was interested for 20 years. But uh, it sounds like a good book, you know, Breaking the Stack. What, no, what that's right. under there? That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And I do feel like there are more now. I think that the positive side is there are so many more resources available now than there ever have been before. And I love Ben Eater's series. I love. I mean, you've got the and you know, Tom, you talked about this deck book last time on on the, the, the kind of building up the the small system and being able to fit the whole thing in your head. I think there's more and more of that available than than ever before. So I think that there's an, a lot of opportunity for people to learn, but then the question is like, how do you to kind of mature that? Simeon, you've had your hand up for a long time. Whoop, Simeon, you still there? Sorry, Simeon. Yep, we can yep, hear you. Sorry. Um, yeah, I think it's a very interesting topic. This, like, how do you how do you get in? Um, one of the thoughts I had. So, so Brian, I love the idea of helping people debug stuff. Um, I. I recently heard somebody describe reverse engineering as the debugging nobody asked you to do. Um, that seems mm. like a way to break down the doors. <laughs> um, uh, something that, that I'd be interested in getting um, you know, folks' input on is uh, how do you do the sort of, how do you get into communities beyond just looking for an open source project in a GitHub, um, you know, go find GitHub issues and, and solve them for people. If you, if you want to get into hardware and that sort of stuff, like, I know that um, Edwin, who's not on this call uh, today, but he, he said he met you folks uh, first time at like, I think an open hard, hardware meetup where yeah, you were, with like, our... you're taking a motherboard apart and like trying to like reflash a, um, you know, a, uh, a reflash a, you know, a bias onto a motherboard or something like that. Um, you know, what are, what are the venues, the tools, the ways that you can get into that kind of thing? Yeah, that's actually a great question. And Rick, I was wondering if you might want to answer that because actually Rick was there. Rick, Josh, and I were all there when Edwin was there at the OSFC in 2019. Tom was there too. Um, but Rick, I wonder if you might want to take – because I think the, the reverse engineering point is actually a really good point. Another great way – and I think it's – reverse engineering I think has got more – I mean from my perspective, more currency and relevance than ever because security is so important. Um, but um, maybe I'm um, – I don't know. Rick, is that – I, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I I came to systems programming via a very roundabout way uh, and literally by accident. Um, so, you know, part of my career path is I, I actually started much more at the hardware level uh, growing up. I, I had some people in my life who were very much into electronics and, and electrical work. And so like, I understood that part really well. And I understood how to use a computer really well, but I really didn't understand anything of the, the intermediate parts. Um, but I was always curious about how they worked. And just, you know, my, my career path, I, I grew up in a very rural area in Ohio. 
uh, I went to a state school in Ohio. I did not have a, a particularly good chance of entering into high tech um, at the big companies, yet here I am. Um, partly that was literally due to a clerical error. So sometimes when people are worried about, you know, what's the path in, just part of it is luck and part of it is keeping your eyes open for different opportunities um, and looking, you know, past kind of what the surface value of an opportunity is. Um, but specifically getting into like the curiosity part and, and reverse engineering, like my, I was dropped into a situation where I was literally told, hi, you now work at Apple. We are designing a new part, uh, a new machine based on a new processor that nobody's talked about and it has bugs and we need you to go characterize the performance of it and have fun. And so I was just given a ton of material and told to go figure this stuff out. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I also knew that because it was a system that was not fully defined, I had a lot of room to experiment and I shouldn't be afraid to break things. So a lot of yeah, reverse engineering, a lot of curiosity boils down to feeling like you have the permission to go try things and experiment and mm, realizing yeah. that you're not, you're unlikely to permanently damage something that like, there are things that can do that, but for the most part, you can just do really deep things to your system and see what happens. And then when you don't understand what happened, then you go find the community that can answer that question. And that's when you start to find these communities where you're like, Oh, you know, there's the uh, OS dev channel on Libera chat that talk about all the like system mode bring up stuff. Um, but they don't necessarily get down into the deeper details of the electrical side of, of how the hardware works. And, you know, that's a different community. And on reverse engineering, it's kind of coming at it from this perspective of, I understand how the lowest levels of the system work, but I don't necessarily know how the upper layers work. Um, or I know how the upper layers work, but I don't necessarily know how the lower layers work. How can I do experiments to kind of figure out what's going on? How can I use the information I have to put together a picture of how, how it probably works and then go test that theory? And, you know, that's, that's my career in a nutshell is basically just poking at things, seeing what happens when I can't get a clear answer, when I'm stumped, going and finding somebody who at least can point me in the right direction or be a really good rubber duck to kind of let me figure out what direction to go explore. Yeah, and actually, Rick, you're getting to another on brand for us, but another oxide value as well in terms of resilience and kind of continuing to grind and like, okay, I've tried, I, I, I don't understand this, what's going on? And instead of hitting, you know, a dead end where other people might might kind of walk away, being like, no, no, I need to go like find the resource, find the whether it's online or find and ask the questions and uh, and try different things. I really like your your point about that too because I feel that um, you know often when you're stuck on a problem, it can help you just to get out of a, a local minimum by just trying some different things, and that can be hard to do. I feel I feel like we can get ossified in our thinking. It can be hard to 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 remind ourselves to like to play around a bit and because Rick, you also made another really interesting point about doing things that we're not assured of success of like i'm just going to explore this i don't know if this is a path that's fruitful or not i feel that that's also a a, a very kind of important theme um for doing systems work 
That's the agony and the ecstasy of systems programming. And I think that Rick hit on something really important that we don't emphasize enough, which is that these systems have become so incredibly complex that you cannot reason about them from first principles anymore. You have to take an experimental scientific approach to understanding the behavior of non-trivial systems. Yeah. Period. End of story. Yep. Yeah, that's very true. And it, 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 that's a very good point that these are like, th these systems are very, even the simple ones are, are fiendishly complicated. And you've got to have an idea, because Rick, you described having an idea of like, I think the system works this way. What can I go kind of construct to answer that question definitively? I think is a, is a very and so Rick, I'm I'm I have to say I'm, I'm dying of curiosity about the clerical error. Is that because is Apple your first big break or was it was there one before Apple? Yeah, so uh, my university, I went to University of Cincinnati, and they're the origin of the, of co-ops. Like they they literally created that entire concept. Um, so it's a mandatory part of the curriculum is is to take alternating six month periods and go work in industry and then come back to school and go back to industry and come back to school. And the school helps uh, find jobs for you. And usually they found things in the Cincinnati area, but sometimes people got more interesting things. And it just happened that a friend of mine, the placement office accidentally sent his resume to Apple and he got selected uh, oh. and they were completely aghast and like trying to tell him he can't possibly go do this and then they were apple's like no seriously we really want you to come out um and from there it led into a word of mouth like these are the people who are really good from this school and it set up a pipeline of, of people for at least a few years um but yeah i i literally am sort of a one step removed from a, a literal clerical <laughs> a literal mistake from ohio to it the and Rick, do you think that in all, I mean, increasingly in a remote world, regardless of whatever trolling VCs say, Founders Fund can go jump in a lake, um, in increase, increasingly in a remote world, certainly in an open source world, do, do some of those geographical boundaries break down a little bit? Does the, the, does the Rick Alfred graduating from the University of Cincinnati today, uh, it, it, is that person less dependent upon a clerical error to get into this stuff? I would like to hope so. <laughs> that's it. Well, that's, I think it's pretty good. Well, yeah, I mean, it could, it could, it could really go either, either go away where, you know, uh, in terms of acting, you would go to LA to be discovered. And I think there was certainly a time when in computer, in, in software engineering, you would go to San Francisco and the Bay Area to be discovered, um, which created a hurdle in one sense, but another, but sort of a leap of faith that folks could take. But now with an all remote world, I think it's more egalitarian, certainly, but I think it may actually be harder to distinguish yourself as well. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Certainly there's, there's a bigger pool for sure. I mean, we benefit, I mean, but boy, there are so many folks that we have the privilege of working with at Oxide that I just feel like we would not be working with in a non remote world. Um, so it's been really, really transformative and important. Uh, Nathaniel, I think you had your, your hand up next. No, actually, I think it was Matt. Oh, it was Matt. Sorry, Matt. Go ahead. Hey, guys. So um, getting back to the topic of incurious students and, and, and uh, you know, why, why people aren't more curious about the low-level stuff, 
I wonder if part of the problem is that on our modern computers, um, especially I would say the sandboxed mobile and tablet type devices, the insulation that you were talking about earlier is too perfect. Like it's awfully good. Yeah. I do feel this way about the, I love the Chromebook and I think the Chromebook is an incredibly important and uh, undersung product but the Chromebook is so secure that kids can't, I mean, it, it's very hard for kids to, you know, the, the old war games of, you know, hacking in and, and changing their grade to an A or whatever. Like you're definitely not doing that via a Chromebook. And well, even, even as far back, I would say as windows XP, you were running atop a robust enough foundation that, that you, you couldn't, well, I, so maybe this is just nostalgia talking, but uh, I, I remember on my family's first computer, the Apple II GS, I started getting at least little glimpses of how things worked on a low level as you know, when I was a little kid. Like, Brian, I'm sure you remember on the 2GS, if you pressed, uh, I think it was Control Open Apple Escape, it would like trigger an interrupt that would go into this control panel UI. Um, and uh, I would say that 100% of my time on an Apple II GS was at my neighbor's house getting my ass kicked on Epic's games. Ah, um, right. And, okay, so you didn't get near as deep into it, probably. But yeah, so, and, uh, so and of course, the II GS wasn't a multitasking machine, but still, it it it, it had this this thing, yeah, you know, that this command that could trigger an interrupt and you know, interrupt whatever you were doing and take you somewhere else. And at some point, I noticed that. If I was running some 2GS game that was like playing music in the background, then I could switch into this control panel UI, and but the music would keep playing. How does that work? Interesting. And 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 it's some and and it didn't take me long to figure out that if I dropped into the the monitor, which was that this Apple II, basically a a, a REPL for assembler for 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 like where you could like enter. Uh, you know, lines of assembly language and run them uh, as I recall and it didn't take me long to figure out that like if I disabled interrupts the sound would start looping on what on uh, whatever half second it had been playing or something like that so, so, it, so to give you some okay so I, I, I hear what you're saying certainly yeah. I, so I, I do think that there, and I and totally like I think the phones in particular are very hard to I mean, they're, they're far too sophisticated. You're not going to hack. And it's too hard to hack in your phone. I, mm-hmm. I do feel that the, the two things I would say are, one, I see at least with my own kids, uh, Minecraft getting, I do think, you know, we're talking about is Minecraft systems programming. I think you're going to have to say it, it, it probably is getting there um, based on some of the things that kids today are are building with Minecraft, where you are getting into kind of the, 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 the blocks of way, the way things work. The other thing I would say is, thing I do love about this day and age is these eval boards where you can have these super cheap computers that have everything on it. Now they don't have, it's not a two GS. So you're not playing, you know, you're not, and maybe that's what makes it hard for, for kids to get captivated by it. But there's a sense in which it's actually, things are, are very accessible in a way that they, that they haven't been. Yeah, yeah, Matt, it's funny you took this, this route because as you were talking about Chromebooks and these locked down phones, I was thinking about you know the the point of curiosity that a lot of kids go through is cheating at video games, and I like I certainly did uh, like like you know kind of figuring out how to uh, you know hack shareware well, games. I so would I have, have to pay I for would them. have actually I would have had to 
yeah, be able to play the games in order to cheat at them, but yeah, right. Yeah, fair, 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 enough. fair, fair enough. But, uh, but you know, I was yeah. thinking on on the phone. Uh, you know, one of the first kind of um, pieces of hex editing my my now sixteen year old, but then like nine year old was doing was to cheat at a video game on the phone where they could extract kind of data files from the phone to the computer and then stuff them back in after editing, you know, aspects of the save file. So I think that even as things feel locked down and things feel kind of curated in this walled garden, there are lots of little edges for curious fingers to get, get underneath. That's an awesome anecdote. And I also feel that because, I mean, you've got especially that you're older has got that real disposition, Adam. So it's good to know that, 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 that the, the kids are, are definitely all right. I also think that, like, I don't know if, if he does robotics team, but the, the whole robotics team did not exist when I was a kid. Um, and that's, I think, another way that, that kids are really understanding how things work in a way that's exciting to them. Certainly my daughter is just loving that stuff. Uh, hey, quick note, we've got a lot of folks with their hands up. Um, I want to get to them. And then we've got actually a lot of folks that are waiting to speak because Twitter Spaces has a very low cap on speakers. Um, if, if you've requested to speak and can't speak yet, it's because uh, we can only have whatever it is, 12 speakers. So, yeah. um, so if you've said your piece too, um, you know, making, making space for someone else would be appreciated. It would be great. Uh, on that note, uh, Nathaniel, and then I think Kaleem, and then I know Patrick, you had your hand up, and then Dan. Um, yeah, so so it's funny that you sort of brought up the computing for kids thing, because um, I've been thinking about this a bit lately, because one of the things that I did in, in undergrad when I was bored was I ported um, ported Inferno to L4, just because. Um, so if you don't know what Inferno is, it's a sort of reimagined plan nine of sorts that runs inside its own sort of virtual machine. Um, and... Uh, it has like the language called Limbo in it. There's a compiler for it. Limbo is kind of like GoLang, except uh, came with generics at first, which is kind of interesting. But no, um, I've been thinking about this because if you want to sort of get kids interested in systems programming, Plan 9 on the Raspberry Pi 4 is actually a small enough system that like the C compiler is like hmm. five 5,000 lines. Um, it's tiny and like it's a, it's a small system. There aren't that many syscalls to it. Everything is through 9P, um, and like it's, it might be worth looking into if you want to sort of try to get somebody who's you know undergrad, high school level to get interested in like C programming and like how does an OS work. Um, I think Plan Nine is also hard real time, so you kind of get that aspect as well. As well. Um, <laughs> but um, that's yeah. It's, I I'll, I'll let I'll let I'll let Dan grumble about it. Um, there was also a, a mention uh, a note from Dan too about OS as a commodity. So I used to work for a uh, boutique hosting company um, who hosts who hosts like InfoQ and like um, used to host Atlassian's co- corporate infrastructure, and we were contracted out to build out the uh, hosting platform for Jira Studio back in the day, and I wrote the cluster scheduler for that back in like. 2010, um, back before containerization was actually kind of a, a household name. It was one of those things that we just did because we needed we needed the tenancy, um, and you know, running a whole bunch of virtual machines across, uh, you know, however many tenants we had. I think we had like 15,000 tenants or something. It was low ten to the fifth. Um, was just not tenable. Like you just couldn't pack VMs tight enough for that. Um, so we wrote this piece of software and 
C plus plus O three like ISO standard C plus plus that just farmed out processes to machines and did the thing. Um, and they'll come to find out that Google had Borg at the time. And, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And uh, it, so, so what's really funny about about the the thing that we had internally was that it was actually called Babysitter. And come to find out that Google actually had their own thing called Babysitter that was sort of like the um, as you would probably phrase it, Brian, the the er um, the er Borg, right? The sort of like the primordial version of Borg, and it was basically just a just a uh, you know a process supervisor. So if you're you know familiar with Daemon tools or or run it, it was sort of in, in that same vein, um, except we just made it distributed. So we had a you know a job queue sort of sitting out way out in front on a on a on a machine somewhere. It was just an append only um, database, uh, append only log. Um, but yeah, so actually the way that I got into systems programming, um, sort of like to cap this all off, uh, was to, um, to, I think Adam's point, I was, I was looking at like cheating at games. Um, and this is actually sort of my entrance into the demo scene. Um, I, used to, I used to write uh, cracks for like Commodore 64 games. Um, you know, you'd, you'd, get the, you'd get the disc from your friend who worked at the, you know, the video game store and you would spend like the weekend um, cracking the bootloader because there would be copy production or something on it. Um, so you'd go into the, you know, C64 assembly monitor and you'd, you know, figure out how to sort of not sled your way out of it. And, uh, and that was that. And then if you had enough space left over, you could just write like a, you know, a short scroller or, or whatever in there to, you know, draw pretty colors on the display while the, while the, you know, the game loaded up. Um, what's funny is when I, when I was in high school, we had a, an electronics program so like you did solid state and digital and the whole nine yards. And there was a sort of microcomputing component to it. And we had this like Z80 trainer for like, you know, you would hand assemble Z80 code and you would enter it into like this, this panel with switches. And then like you would press the step switch. And, um, wow. One of my, yeah, 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 yeah. And this was, so. That feels so, very dreamlike. Really, that actually happened? Or is that, I mean, I just feel like. The... No, it was, no, it's, it's a, it's a real thing. So, so wow. what, I, what I wound up, what I wound up doing was actually for my senior project in high school was I, uh, I put together a version of that, um, also for the Z80, but with a few a few different sort of uh, takes on it. So there was um, there's some documentation on the Game Boy and like the sound hardware, and the Game Boy was also a Z80 machine. So I was like, you know, maybe I can do something with like, you know, some oscillators and like build my own sound hardware for my own version of this, and like you know just sort of make a, you know, a chiptune synth out of it. So yeah, Game actually, Boy hacking is like a huge thing. We've yeah. got a we got a colleague who's super into Game Boy hacking, and it's yeah. really interesting. I mean, it's yeah. It, there's there's a lot to it. It's it is a, it is a surprisingly deep little piece of hardware, and like this is this is a thing from 1988. This is a yeah. little you know like double A powered device with a Z80 in it, and like I uh, some some sound hardware to sort of you know make beeps and bloops. Um, and something to refresh to, to refresh the display, but like it's actually surprisingly deep. So that was my senior project in high school. Is I, I put together sort of this like chip tune synthesizer thing, um, and then it, uh, it, it is, so the thing in terms of like the, kind of getting back to the, the kind of the, the question at hand. So if someone's looking to kind of break into this stuff professionally, cool. who's been who's been doing the, maybe higher level software, more application focused software for a period like I, I, what, what's the I, so I, I do want to kind of get us to like what's the what's the advice for folks who are who who want to get lower um and 
kind of while you're thinking about that, I want to get uh, clean. You, your hand's been up for a long time. I want to get, I want to get you in here as well. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Can you, can you hear me first of all? Yep. We can hear you. Yeah. So I want to take this uh, narrative of, you know, system programming and why, you know, new folks are not doing it. I think I'm going to share my experience. I think that's very relatable to this. I think the way, uh, if you look at the old docs, right? They are just like books. So whenever I was learning like Java Spring, like a couple of years back, I would read the docs. I would be like, say, okay, I want to go deep into this. And then the documentations are horrible, to be honest. They are not interactive in a sense that they are not on the point. So there, there is no hook. The way I see that, I I just had a Twitter space, by the way, uh, with Dan on this topic, he writes docs for the solid js so he's a very so he had a very strong views there so uh, the thing is as long as even you know if you want to build interest uh, this is in general true you need to provide the active value if you, if you if your docs are just like books in like 700 page i don't necessarily see anybody would be interested i don't think this is a problem with sy- system programming but this is True in general. If you look yeah. at like Spring Box, I see this because this is a very relatable experience I share. If you look at Spring Docs and you just see you want to learn, you would see that they're teaching you XML, which is almost obsolete. And you would you 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 just want to get started in like 20 minutes. One more thing I see if you look at the modern way that the things are taught is educative.io. So actually, can we before we get to that? Can we just talk about docs for a second? I think you've hit on a really important point here, Kaleem. The it, it because I do feel that a hallmark of a great system of great system software is great documentation, and I I feel that you know we our, our colleague Cliff Biffle has done if you if you've gone into the hubris documentation has really spent a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to sculpt that documentation. And I, I do feel that it's more the exception than the rule. Um, and so, Kaleem, are there particular systems that, I don't know, have you read the, the Hubris docs, by the way? Yeah, you, unbelievable. I mean, that's, like, that's like everything that Cliff has done, it's just an incredible job. Just extraordinary. And 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 very, it makes it very accessible too, because it means that someone can kind of roll up to it. Kaleem, to kind of your point, I want to understand like why, like what is the why behind this thing? And I think that a good system software documentation has that crisp why. And I, yeah, I think it is a, a bit lacking. Clean, are, there, are there systems that you think today have a particularly compelling documentation or is it something that you're, in your esteem has just kind of been going downhill? Yeah, I think, uh, let me put it this way from the learning perspective, right? I'm just trying to be very generic uh, in a sense, and that can apply to system software. If you look at, uh, you know, educative.io, in a sense, because I I was just uh, enrolled in there, one of the courses, and the way they make it so easy is that their websites you know, provide the experience of uh, you can you can create nodes, you can have uh, animated GIFs that you can go back and forth. So it's not just docs in terms of docs, it's a whole learning experience. Because if you look at it, how we learn or how today we learn, the textbook way is kind of getting overpassed by the web, right? Anything you put, if you're, if you, 
I, what I'm trying to focus is more on, you know, overall learning experience. If we have, let's say, systems, uh, some kind of docs that is, uh, you know, that has uh, does visual elements that are like, one example I would go is that if you go to educative.io, one thing I like about them is that if they're explaining you how URL shortener works, right? This is a recent example. Instead of telling you everything, you have a visual which you can, you know, play back and forth and then read the uh, their description. So you, it is very relatable experience. I don't necessarily think this is a there's a problem with the system programming docs, but this is more about a modern way how we have to see things to you know attract our newcomers, right? Yeah. The way newcomers come is that they go to Mernstack. They go for, you know, I can't remember. Every framework, like, this is how uh, things are evolving. I think this is a perspective uh, because I come from that era, like recent era, so I don't come from, like, 10 years back. So I'm. Uh, this is a new perspective. I think if we start thinking from uh, a learning perspective, experience perspective rather than saying that hey this doc is perfect because this matches some standard of course it does but you have to see that i, I see that uh, every documentation should have uh, if it's on web should have like three versions because every reader is not gonna understand your crisp uh, like concise language it must be it might be perfect but if you look at somebody's trying to get in they are going to have a hard time. They might need to read it like 10 times or seven hmm. times, which, which is not necessarily desirable. So if you have a beginner-friendly, like informal language that explains docs, I think that's a very good uh, learning experience and that's going to grow your uh, interest if, 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 in simple words, rather yeah, than funny. saying that this is a perfect docs because it, it is compliant to this standard. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. It's, it, yeah, no, that, that I've not gone on educate.io, but it definitely look, looks uh, looks interesting. And it certainly feels like there's a lot of new ways to, to learn systems out there. Um, in terms of who is uh, um, Anno 0770, I think, are, are, are you next? I think Ian was first. Okay, there you go. Go for it. You are yes. also, you're so courteous. So uh, uh, you're currently hiring for a couple of positions that could be considered systems programming positions. Um, as a hiring manager, you're, if you are hiring someone who is changing roles from a non a, 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 a role maybe higher up the stack to this role, what sorts of things are you looking for in terms of someone who is curious about going to that role? Like, how would, yeah. they, pick up the, how would they pick up Rust, which is likely the language that you're that they're going to be working in, and potentially like. You've mentioned a Arduino pet washing coffee maker. Have you got examples of projects that people could pick up on the side to be able to like brush up their skills in that area? Yeah, and I feel I mean I don't know how representative we are or not. I, I feel that I, I think I've said this before, but one of the, the the things that is hardest about Oxide for me personally is just the sheer number of folks that we have that want to work for the company, which is great. And the um, I, and I, I I feel that it's actually given me great confidence that there are lots of systems folks out there because we see so many. We have people do these materials where they're talking about things that are meaningful for them or, or that they're proud of uh, as a portfolio of work, and there's a lot of of really, really, really great stuff out there. Um, I think that we've got a lot of folks that are um, that uh, have changed directions or are 
Uh, and I think I do think that I mean, I, I, my my colleagues speak to this as well, but I, I do feel that we are looking for uh, pretty intense curiosity, and then it, the, you're looking for a kind of doggedness. I do feel, and I think that we we kind of we you know I, I feel Rick hit on this earlier with the resilience. I, I feel that systems are will resist being understood. And you need a certain uh, monomaniacal kind of focus to actually um, will these systems into being understood sometimes. So I think we're kind of looking for that as well. But again, I don't know that we're representing. But you already, you know, from the perspective of a hiring manager, to a degree, you already answered this with, you know, Patrick and uh, and Josh's stories of folks who showed up and contributed in really meaningful ways. And And that has been true at Oxide as well. That's right. got, and, I, yeah. and I think like, you know, if, if, if folks were, for example, using something like Dropshot, our, our web framework or totally. Hubris, our, our embedded uh, operating system, um, like the, like, and we're using it and po- contributing positively, you know, that would uh, speak volumes and, you know, be an overweight factor compared with, um, you know, w- what they had done necessarily. But but part of that is the authentic interest. You know, people, we've we've also had folks show up and say, "Here are a bunch of clippy nits that we drop in," and that's not unhelpful, but it doesn't show a, a depth of curiosity and use. And um, it, you know, it's a different kind of contribution. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right, Adam. And I think it's like we're not looking for, oh, you know, you're you're interested in our software projects as kind of like as, as a as a sycophant. We are. It's we're really looking for that that deep natural interest because it represents more of an alignment on how software should be built. And because we know that like the way we're doing things are not a fit for everybody and that's okay. And so we, um, but yeah, when we do find that those kind of deep contributions, just like Patrick's LDAP.js back in the day um, or, or Josh back in the day, you do realize like, okay, yeah, this is, this is a kindred spirit. Uh, and it is, it is definitely important. And does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I was just uh, kind of ruminating internally about how you could uh, uh, extrapolate the uh, oxide specificness of that to a, a broader, like, okay, now someone is hire, uh, is applying to a citizen job for another organization. What might that hiring manager be looking for for a job changer? It okay, sounds so, like the, yeah. the common, commonalities there might be, you know, contrib- contributions to open source uh projects that that are that are relevant and, and that level of curiosity to be able to apply um that knowledge in a non-trivial fashion or like a in a more direct fashion is that would that be a, a app? i think that that would be apt and i would also say and if anyone is if, if anyone is hiring uh technologists please 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 have a writing intensive process that allows people to demonstrate their their who they are and not just a resume and a cover letter i feel that i mean adam i don't know if you feel the same way but i i I know that as i've said before like the hiring process that we have is a consequence of having done it grievously wrong in in previous lives and i can't imagine another way to do it because we've had so many people i feel where you look at the resume and you're like yeah, I don't know. Yeah, interesting. And then you look at the materials and you're like, whoa, okay, wow, really interesting. And conversely, you've had people who are like, wow, this resume is amazing. And then you look at the materials and you're like, these materials are a lot less amazing. Um, I don't know if you've had that. Yeah, no, no disagreement. But I would also say that, you know, having hired at some other companies, 
we also have a fairly privileged position of, totally. of that many folks wanting to show up and throwing up what to some might feel like an obstacle of our fairly intensive writing intensive application process, you know, in not necessarily uh, creating too much of a bottleneck, whereas for a lot of organizations, it is going to create that bottleneck. It, it, totally agreed. I do feel that the, 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 the two questions that everybody should ask every candidate in writing before I feel, what are you proud of? Talk about something that you're proud of and why do you want to work here? Yes. I feel like the, the, like, yeah, totally agree. Giving, giving people the space to, to opine on, on what excites them is really motivating. And then understanding their connection to your company and your mission and your team. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, so yeah, you bet. Uh, NO 0770. I don't know how to pronounce that. You know, I, I... Uh, th that's perfectly fine. Um, I wanted to like give the question a s small twist, namely, um, why didn't I end up going to system programming? Although I, I was well oh, yeah. on the way. And um, basically, I've been into computer science for a long time. Did open course where stuff structure of interpretation and computer programming, the list version when I was. 14, 16, because I found it interesting. And um, then around the age of like 17, 18, I heard of operating system family I had never heard before. And the Tron operating system family from Japan. And it's like really impressive stuff. They had like plans for embedded operating system, desktop yes. operating system, server operating system, custom CPUs, which are better for the real-time properties, which all those had and that kind of stuff. And anyhow... So I can guarantee Adam does not know that there is a Tron reference in the, in the kernel, Adam. No. Cyclics are a, a tip of the hat to Tron. Tron wow, has the Tron. That. Yeah, yeah, Tron and, and it's like iTron, micro iTron. Anyway, yeah, Tron does not come up pretty frequently. Wow, it's a, it no. is a, um, this was like a, would, would compete against like PSOS. This is for like engine controls. So this is like super hard real-time stuff. Anyway, go ahead. Um. And uh, I basically was fascinated and digged through all their like 60, 80, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, um, English publications because they're Japanese, they don't have that man many English publications. But because there were like a lot of people working on their complete architecture um, with like all the different branches I told about, I was like quite a little to dig through. And like for a project for my school, I bought all this down into like 60, 80 roughly something of that magnitude of like latex pages which were made to be understandable by a lay person understanding all the terms and i like had to dig all the terms from all its different disciplines uh tron later in the history didn't turn out because like u.s imperialism but that's beside the point <laughs> and um the Japanese um, people, including the professor which got it started, uh, were like that impressed by the questions I asked doing my research to them. And um, they did, had, didn't have a full scope what I was doing, but they were so impressed that they said, um, you know what, we invite a person every year to our conference, to an annual conference. We, we only do embedded stuff. And it's no longer called iTron as it was before for industrial. It's now... Um, I'm not quite sure what her name is. I forgot it. Um, anyway, I was there and like was nice shaking hands. Uh, was fun. Um, three years later, I bought um, their um, um, 
embedded operating system to an open source re-implementation of the super age CPU architecture, which originally comes from Japan, was made by the people which previously worked on the Tron CPU. And there was like a pre-existing iTron port I could like draw from. And um, the open source implementation had basically no documentation. So I went into the VHDL code and like tried to find out what the device registers are, try to learn all that from scratch, document what I learned, document what kernel changes, yeah, and sorry, what compiler changes were made, that kind of stuff. And um, then, um, I, I like sent them that and that, that, yeah, that's interesting. We are welcome to have you again, but like you will have to pay your own flight and your own stay this time. Okay, that was fine. Um, um, I managed to do that. And um, then I was there and um, I was like in the junior track or something like that for the conference. And nobody there talked about embedded or like one person talked about a payment system for a mobile payment system for buses. Um, another person talked about smart home, other thing. And um, at the, in the same year, there was like a new version of this um, kernel release, a new specification because it's all specification based and then there's one default implementation. Anyhow, um, I didn't know there was a new version. So I posted, so I sort of almost ported the old version. And <laughs> then I learned that, but what was even worse, there was no person there to um, talk with me about the embedded stuff I did, about the work I did. Just like, mm. yeah, we have a new version. Yeah, and we have the spec. Um, the spec also as PDF is available, but um, if you want it in, pr in print, it's like $60 uh, or something like that. So, nah. well, so, so There's an interesting point here, though, I think, in terms of, you know, we're talking about how does one, you know, get engaged. You know, you've got an open source project that's being worked on, it's got a company behind it. And one of the, a good way that, I, to me, that that highlights of getting engaged is going in where there is Spartan documentation and adding the docs. I mean, that is something that that can be that can be really uh, represent a lot of hard work. That generally is going to be pretty welcome, and is going to I think turn some heads. I sort of did that with my uh, paper, and that ended up in the track. It's published somewhere, probably under Springer. I don't know. Um, anyway, that that was like the one thing, and like nothing came of it. I talked with them. They've there was nobody to talk about a better thing, but that was not all. I also like studied all the VHDL code for these open source yeah, wow. CPU implementation and tried to dig into that. And there was no documentation. How the fuck um, can I say um, that word here? How does the interrupt controller work? Well, I dug into the VHDL and found an odd uh, off by one error in the um, interrupt controller in Oof. the like nanoseconds time register where um, in the first run through, it will go from zero to nine, 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 nine. And in all further ones, it will go from one to like uh, 10 to the uh, nine. So there was like one off inconsistency between this thing. And I like approached the people which did the open source implementation of the process and like released it as a table and said, yeah, I found this back here. I replicated it on um, the hardware you gave me, sort of you sent me. Um, I replicated that bug. It exists. I'm not imagining this. It's a minor bug, <laughs> but um, uh, can I get this upstream merge, something like that? Um, and like two weeks later, I said, uh, we had a look at the code. That part of the code base has to thrown out anyway. No, we do not merge your code. No, we will not include your thing in the new Tarball release. Oh, and that geez. was also it. Yeah. And that was it. And um, 
that then I just the, um, Dan's point that even uh, a small community can be can be not welcoming. That's definitely annoying. Uh, and then, like um, with that experience, and back in uh, Germany where I'm from, um, basically I talked with um, someone a few years older than me, which like came to visit our school. What he's doing in computer science, and then uh, just it sounded like the first one and a half two years will be full of stuff I already taught myself. So I then kind of knew um, oh, what I do as like open source, minimal, viable product where it actually can have an impact. My idea was by popularizing and like giving this open source re-implementation of an old CPU architecture, which is now out of patent, which has a historical connection that the specific operating system by like using this um, overlappingness, that connectedness, I can like, slightly push the operating system market in that particular Japanese area, maybe a bit in that direction. No feedback at all. Nothing came yeah, from no, it. Nice. I go into different discipline. I find out how differential equations work. Yeah, there you go. Right. Exactly. Well, that, yeah. And so, I mean, it, it's definitely not, it's not foolproof, certainly. Um, but that's definitely an, an interesting tale. Uh, so, uh, team, and I think you're next, and I think we're definitely going way over here. So I definitely would love to, to make that, this might be our last comment. Team, do you want to? Uh, yeah, sure. Can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. Awesome. Um, yeah, my point was like a long time ago. Um, you were, I think, uh, talking a little bit about like, yeah, uh, smaller companies, you know, not really needing systems programmers and uh, yeah I just want to give you a point of like um, because a lot of the examples here I think they're like around like operating systems or like anything kind of in that realm of like very close to hardware kind of systems um, but yeah I, I come more from um, yeah I guess you can call it media systems um, like it, it's it's a like very different abstraction level. So like we, we build on top of course operating systems, but um, uh, I thought did you say on top of chorus? Uh, sorry, on top of operating systems. So like we, okay, we, okay, we right, build okay. on top of the people that like operate systems. That's uh, right. we, we build systems on top of systems for systems. Okay, um, and so so do you view it as system software? I think to to kind of to to end where we started. Do you view that as system software? Uh, sorry, I didn't catch do you, that. Do you, do you view that as system software? Because I think this is one of the things we were yes. talking about. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So like yeah. my, my definition of system software or like systems is like uh, it's software that is made up of little blocks that talk to each other um, and build, you know, one coherent thing, but on individually they are useless. Um, and I think the differentiating factor, because that could also be an application, but the differentiating factor is then that this, these all these little blocks enable a whole different thing, another application or even another system uh, to function. And that that I do or did actually, I switched industries. But um, past nine years, I was making media systems. So for example, uh, today museums, they are very interactive and uh, they are can be extremely complicated. So you have like 30, 40 different exhibits they quite often talk to three or four different other exhibits um, because you can interact with them and then something else happens over there. And you have like embedded systems that talk to, you know, a Linux system that does something and you have a lot of small little things. And, you know, I, I actually come from like visual effects and like from a artistic standpoint and I kind of grew more into programming and into this space and at some point I realized um, I'm actually 
building systems to enable <laughs> these applications. So like, because they get so complex, because there's so much complexity in the interactions involved there, you have to write software to actually be able to write the software for the client because yeah, if you would do that from scratch every time, it's way too complicated. So you need to abstract away a lot of these complexities into something like a system that you know abstracts away some of these things for these yeah little implementations that are specific to a client. Um, and that was for a very small company. Um, wouldn't say it's also you know there's not a lot of money in that either. And I think if you, if you reframe a little bit what a system is and are open to different things, if you're not, you know, maybe you're interested in embedded systems. I do a lot of embedded systems as well. And like that is, can be part of that, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a very different type of systems, but the same thinking involved, like thinking about how things have to interact with each other, how all these little blocks have to, you know, mesh into each other, how, how they talk to each other and how all of these things together make up something that, you know, make things work. I think that's a very similar methodology to an operating system. Totally. Well, and I think, I mean, this, I think this brings us around to a good finishing point because this is actually kind of where we started in terms of that, you know, Adam, your, your curiosity and rigor that I think seems to be a, a theme we've seen throughout. And I think people being curious and then being rigorous in their own thinking, but whether they're debugging a system or documenting a system or reverse engineering a system, being tenacious and resilient and following that curiosity to the depths of the system feels to be like a, a pretty common theme that we're hearing in terms of how people got into this. Yeah. yeah you know, one last anecdote I wanted to share was, um, I, you know, a, a guy I went to high school with, uh, we were both into computers. Like he hosted a BBS, like on his second phone line. So I dial up and, uh, and every once in a while, like his mom would pick up and I went into computer science and he went into German studies and humanities. 20 years later, I bump into him in Berkeley and he, you know, now as like a, a grown up with kids decides to go back to school to earn a master's in computer science. Oh, interesting. Um, so spend a bunch of time, you know, re like learning a totally new discipline, new field. Um, and, and so there was, uh, and, and forgive me because I've, I've been uh, reading uh, Bowling Alone. So I've got the nomenclature of, <laughs> of, of, of human capital, which what he was building. But then, um, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about with these communities of whether it's, uh, you know, on GitHub and open source project or, or live in these conferences or whatever is human capital and who you know. And so, you know, my buddy got a uh, got a new job out of out of this uh, master's program, which was awesome. Not something he was fired up about. But then uh, another friend of mine, um, my buddy Lucas, uh, Brian, your buddy Lucas as well. Like I just want to make sure it's the same person. You know, working in a startup, knew the guy, said, "Hey, I think you can do this job." But you know, I've met you, I've, I've talked to you about stuff. So, uh, and, and I've evaluated your talents, and and goes to the startup. Startup gets acquired by Apple. You know, it's a terrific success story for him. I'm very excited for him. Really pleased for him. But, but also that it's it's that confluence of. Um, you know, learning and demonstrating what you know, but then also making those connections, whether through open source communities, in person, you know, through your own networks of, of school and friends and community and whatever yeah. that, that get you to those. And there's, there's probably no silver bullet, but it is, it is building both knowledge and connection.
Yeah, and d- don't you, you can't just rely on the kind of the the cover letter or apply, especially if you're coming from a non-traditional background or one that's kind of a you know a, a later discovery that this is as a calling. You've really probably have to emphasize that that human capital even more. Yeah, um, yeah, no, that that is uh, that's good. Well, that's that brings us right back to to, to we're all just humanists in the end. <laughs> exactly. Great. I know we went a little long, but this is a, this is an exciting one. A, a, a lot of great stories from from uh, a lot of folks. So um, I, I hope this is useful for people who are. Um, I hope that there's some tidbits in there. I know that we, uh, we I think we spent most of the time just defining what some software was, and I'm not even sure we got there. But <laughs> nope, but close enough, right? Close enough, close enough. Uh, but thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time.